0: It looks like we're good and there we go. Hello and uh, welcome everybody to another episode of Workflow Wednesday, uh, where we bring on industry experts uh, to kind of talk about their workflow. Um, Get a little insight into their um, process, the industry, and you know those sorts of topics. Uh, today, we're also joined by Matt Bach, our senior labs technician. And um, so, I always like to start off. Um, we're joined today by Oliver Peters, an independent film editor, colorist, uh, reviewer, very, very multi-hyphenate um, gentleman. And um, in case, in case anybody doesn't already know, um, go ahead, and give yourself a little bit of an introduction. Um, who you are, what you do, and and all that good stuff.
1: Uh, Okay, so uh, I'm Oliver, and uh, I uh, am based out of Central Florida, and I've been doing this for quite a few decades. I'm a freelance uh, editor, colorist along the way. I've worked in radio, I worked in television and various facilities. And uh, I also do product reviews, uh, write up blog articles. Uh, originally started writing for a few of the trade publications. And of course, uh, print magazines have uh, had a challenging time uh, in recent years. So most of that is now uh, online. So
0: uh,
2: kind of uh, all of the above. I'll admit I did a uh, visit your blog uh, the last uh, this morning and just try to like absorb as much as I could really quick. Like, um, we got some really great content on that blog. Like I say, um, one of your posts it was about the uh, VR on uh, Everest. Oh, what was it? what was the name of it? Um,
1: uh, yeah, it was about uh, I forget the title myself, but it was but basically doing a VR project. Climbing Mount Everest—that was a uh, a sponsored project for Oculus, mm. uh, and and that falls into I some of the articles I write are interviews with editors on various projects and feature films and so on. And so this was one of the ones, and it was particularly interesting uh, not only from the VR standpoint, but the uh, the editor doing it was using Resolve to edit it, and also Uh, a lot of the, the VR stuff because he's tied into Fusion. He comes from VFX background. So a lot of the, you know, fixing the stitching and all of the things that get involved in VR,
2: Fusion is his tool of choice for a lot of that. Yeah, but that that one was really interesting. I'll I'll admit that I'm much more of a skimmer reader. Uh, I kind of skim through things as as I read, but that one, I I spent quite a bit of time reading that one. I thought that one was a really, really, really nice piece of content. So thank you for doing that one because I got a lot out of it.
0: Thanks, thanks. That's great. Yeah, some of it, oh, I, I'm just now seeing the one you're just talking about, um, Matt, and I have to admit, I, I was mentioning this earlier, that, like, some of this kind of goes over my head as a, it's <laughs> just kind of a, a regular Joe, but um, it's always, it's always fascinating to learn more. It's so, there's so mm-hmm. much, there's always so much to learn and, and dive into. Um, I'm, I, I'm always a little curious, too, is, like, where, where it started for you.
1: Mm. Uh, well, uh, originally, originally in high school, working as a DJ at a radio station. So,
0: oh,
1: uh, so I started out in radio. Thought I wanted to do radio as a career. Uh, realized on the first job, based on some of my colleagues who were like station manager and so on, uh, that they had kind of been uh, screwed in a number of their jobs over the years, mm-hmm. and that. That was kind of uh, par for the course in radio. So then when I went to college, I ended up, by association on the audio side, getting a job at the local PBS station doing audio, and then that migrated into video. Knowing video got me my first job as an editor at a linear facility
0: uh, doing commercials and so on. Oh, wow. So I've always, I know I've heard, um, you know, you hear about like Premiere Pro and things like that as a non-linear editing sort of thing. Um, I suppose that always there implies the, the opposite coin of linear editing. Um, I, I imagine that comes from the physical film then, like it has to be in line. Well, I never
1: cut film other than in college, a few classes. So hmm. linear uh Really had to do with editing from one tape to another, right? So, so it's all videotape based, and the idea being that if you put shot one, two, three in order, and now you decide to change that order around, you got to go back to the beginning and lay it down sequentially again, right? It's got to be re-recorded. So, hence the linear side, and when really avid. They weren't absolutely the first one, but they were among the first. You know, they kind of coined the idea of non-linear, meaning you could rearrange things. And there were non-digital systems that really preceded them that kind of mimicked that with multiple VHS decks running in sync (laughs) and then... uh, Lucasfilm had like a LaserDisc based system. So there were a couple of variations, but non-linear just simply means you can randomly rearrange the order without the penalty of having to start all over again. Oh, okay.
2: Whenever That's I cool. hear about stuff from, you know, a little bit earlier, before I was getting into any of this stuff, I just always feel so fortunate. I'm like, oh man, it's so much easier. Like I can just throw something into premiere or resolve or whatever and move stuff around and to me you know as someone again who just came into this stuff maybe four or five years ago well, that's normal but then you hear about you know back in the day um like sounds like you didn't get much of the joys of cutting film you know actually you know physically huh. cutting film but hearing those stories of the people who did stuff back then it's it's absolutely amazing how far things have come in what 20 years or so
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the technology obviously uh, has constantly evolved and, you know, it tends to accelerate in that evolution. Uh, But, you know, I mean, cutting linear wasn't necessarily that bad. It, It really depended, right? If you were working on something that was essentially kind of a regimented assembly line sort of project, like here's a script, we've already picked time codes for all the shots put it together nicely, add graphics, linear could be very fast. Hmm. Uh, on the other hand, if it was a lot of trial and error, then linear was not very easy. And and so out of that, you kind of came up with the offline and online workflow where yeah. the the industry basically borrowed terminology from the computer industry where online was typically linear in the very beginning, and it meant that you were working on the final master, whatever Mm. format that was. Offline meant you were using a system that was not creating the final master, but created a list that would then go to the other system so that you could duplicate on the linear, quote unquote, online system what you had done on the nonlinear offline system. And linear went away when offline slash nonlinear finally got to the point that the resolution was good enough that you had master quality stuff that you could spit out of the computer. So at that point you no longer needed to spend quarter of a million dollars on a tape machine times three or four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now you know if you look at a proxy workflow that that's sort of the the same equivalent of that offline online concept mm-hmm. right you're that's editing true. with low res files because you know you don't want to take a lot of native 4k files through the system and try to you know rock and roll with it so you're doing it with smaller you know low data rate files and that's quote unquote the offline and now you're going to the
2: online to generate your final master. Yeah. Yeah. It's always interesting. Like the, the whole proxy workflow, um, I mean, cause us coming from like a, you know, high-performance workstations and stuff. A lot of people come to us at the same, like, I never want to use proxies again, or I never want to have to transcode. And sometimes like it, the people who aren't super, I, I don't know if it's the right way of saying this, but super educated in like how things work behind the scenes are sometimes surprised. Like, oh yeah, I have this footage from a drone and it's this tiny file. And it's like, oh, that's gonna be awful. It's a yeah. small, like super compressed HEVC, like 4K. And it's like, no, you need to, you know, transcode it or use proxies to like ProRes or something else. And I'm like, but it's gonna make it 10 times bigger. It's like, well, like, yeah.
0: Uh-oh. Hold on. Everything just froze on my side. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah, Evil. Oh, 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 we're back. Uh, we're back. Man, I th- out I think of the me. internet. I think it's me. I'm telling you, this only this only seems to happen uh, every once in a while on when I'm in the office. But um I think You know, the okay. office with like the crazy super fast internet. <laughs> um <laughs> okay um roll back maybe a minute or so i'm not sure exactly where it cut off for you guys
2: oh i don't know i I was just saying that like it's uh people are always some people are surprised when like these tiny files that are like hevc or h264 especially from drones, don't work well and it doesn't matter how much money you throw at it 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 really does not matter um they're just going to be awful yeah
1: yeah and and i guess they also don't understand that to some extent it's computer dependent that a file that plays well on one machine you know may not play equally well on another machine based on the components based on the operating system <clears throat>
2: Yeah, there's a lot to it there's a lot of progress being made um like we, we do a whole bunch of adobe stuff ourselves and like adobe is making a lot of good progress recently of finally adding like gpu based um they added encoding for h264 recently and i imagine decoding will be coming soon too uh finally catching up with what like davinci resolve has done for a long time um yeah. and Hopefully once they get that, because I mean, I think we were talking about this a little bit before we actually started the stream, but more people like video is becoming so much more accessible to anybody that like there's a lot of people shooting on phones and those things are going to be highly compressed, um, you know, footage just because, you know, a phone only has so much storage. And so it, all of these applications are having to, like, okay, we've got to do something because so much of our user base now is not these people shooting on red cameras or RA cameras. They're on an iPhone. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, and e- even in the professional sphere, because mm-hmm. the ability to go around with a phone on a gimbal or um, a DJI Osmo, you know, self contained yeah. thing, all of a sudden you've got, really good looking video that you can take in a much more unobtrusive
2: oh dang it <sighs> some sort of... oh no houston friends. <laughs>
0: oh yeah, there that it keeps it keeps Is it keeps still... a little bit it, yeah we may we may have to uh investigate this a little further afterwards <laughs> um yeah um i'm sorry about this you guys i appreciate you struggling through with these technical difficulties that we have here right um
1: (laughs) it's the mice on the internet
0: right not enough hamsters in the wheels (laughs) exactly (laughs) um uh, there was a question uh, I think for Matt, not to, to interrupt the flow here real quick, but there's no, an interesting question. Um, similar to PC performance um, uh, and, and a, kind of the cost to performance chart, is there, are there diminishing returns with file size to quality?
2: That's, Mm. I I mean, you probably have some thoughts on this too, Oliver. I mean, first of all, like there's gonna be certain codecs that are just gonna be massive. You know, something like ProRes Quad 4 or something is gonna be giant. And, you know, that's, I mean, the different flavors of ProRes, I don't know if I can really talk about like what you're getting out of it. I mean, some of it's gonna come down to like the color space. You know, if you're gonna do a heavy corrections, are you gonna get banding or not? Um, But something like H.264, H.265, I mean, there definitely is a point where you're not getting any like real-world improvements. Where that point is? Oh man, I don't, I don't even know. It probably depends on your camera um, somewhat, like how well it handles lower light. Do um, you have any thoughts on that, Oliver? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of sort of secret sauce that goes into
1: everybody's camera. So, for example, uh, I tend to work sort of 99% with uh, another production company in town. And uh, they shoot with both an Alexa Mini and uh, the Panasonic EVA1s, as well as various DSLR, the Sony aa 7s and so on. Um, and so the Alexa obviously shoots ProRes. The EVA1s shoot a version of H.264. If you put them side by side, the shots are pretty interchangeable. However, the Panasonic uh, footage is very taxing on most of the machines because it's h. Ooh. It's basically doing an on the fly. They both seem to color correct about the same and so on. But, you know, what people don't understand is well, the that H264 fairly the same thing as the one shot with or shot with some sort of a low end secret sauce gone in on the camera side to optimize the you know for that or 2.2, two, any combination. So, um, hard to say. I mean, as an editor and a colorist, I would say give me the highest quality you can possibly afford to mm-hmm. give me, and then let's go from there. Uh, I mean, I personally wish we'd chewed everything with the Alexa, but I understand why, you know, why that isn't necessarily always uh, feasible. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, especially, um, I mean, because we do a little bit of video work around, you know, our, our office, not not a ton, especially not now. Um, but yeah, I was always, you know, coming at it from the hardware side, I'm like, oh, I wanna benchmark everything in 4K and above. Uh, and then they come in and they shoot like, no, we're gonna do most of this in 1080p. And like, maybe we'll do one shot in 4K because like, why? It's going onto YouTube. Like,
1: well, what? A lot of, I mean, we tend to shoot 4K for everything. Mm-hmm. but deliver 1080, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's for the reasons everybody always says, you can punch in, you can do uh, more things like that. The, the sort of downside to that is when the client does say, well, I need a 4K deliverable. Well, now you've kind of cut you know, the legs out from under you because you no longer have that extra resolution to punch in. Right. So that's where I guess a lot of people are saying, well, you know, maybe 6K is kind of the optimum size. Nice. And, and you're always kind of chasing that tail, right? It's it, Right now, everybody seems to be talking about 8K as the next thing. And from an editorial standpoint, and, and not just that, but I handle a lot of the systems in the shop. So you're looking at, okay, space on the NAS, yeah. you know, throughput, if I've got five or six systems all trying to tap into that footage. 8K is the last thing I want to see. You know.
2: Well, I mean, now Blackmagic's got the 12K, so forget 8K. We're we're on to 12K now. So
1: so many Ks. It's well, they're they're doing. I haven't quite figured out because they're doing their pixel array different than than mm-hmm. sort of the typical uh, uh, Bayer pattern sensor that Red's been using, and so it's it's not really. 12k per se i mean it's a 12k file size but it's like mm-hmm. 12k to get you really good 6k with the idea of delivering at 4k yeah
2: <laughs> oh wow because huh. well, i mean no one's going to ask for even 8k delivers is it netflix i think was starting to require or ask for 6k like a year back or two years ago like in I, some regions like japan or something like that
1: yeah i mean i like the, it's The Japanese have always been like big on pushing the envelope Mm -hmm. on that. So and, and the thing with Netflix that you have to be a little bit careful of is specs that tend to get touted as these are the Netflix specs. Well, they're the specs for Netflix originals. So if you're an independent producer and you're fortunate enough to be able to sell your product to Netflix, you don't necessarily go under the same stringent guidelines. You know, Hmm. obviously they're going to QC your stuff and you need to pass that QC. But the kind of um, stricter guidelines that they lay out for what they're willing to call a Netflix original is different than that. Hmm.
2: Hmm. That's interesting. I never heard that before, but that totally makes sense because, like, some of this stuff, they're, like... It's the old Indiana Jones movies or whatever. I'm right. Like, they don't have that in 6K. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well,
1: and and Apple is now much the same thing. So I interviewed the guys for the film The Banker, which was like the first feature film that they had picked up for Apple TV Plus, and what they actually shot it on film, and they were planning on a like 2K deliverable, so a little bit bigger than standard hd and when netflix uh when apple committed and you know basically sealed the deal it had to be delivered in in 4k hmm. and that meant because they shot it on film they had to actually go back and rescan the film at 4k instead of 2k oh. in order to be able to satisfy the uh, delivery specs Wow, oh,
2: gross. I mean, I guess you can just kind of like <laughs> relink things, but I imagine like if you're actually scanning film, I'm sure it could be off by a frame or two.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are ways to do that. Yeah. Uh, and the thing with film is the more you handle it, the more you pick up dirt and things, mm-hmm. even under the most pristine circumstances. So then you sure. end up having to do dust busting where you digitally paint out little flecks of dust or things like that that have cropped in in the transfer process.
0: Yeah, I remember an early, an early side by side shot of uh, the movie *The Fifth Element* when 4K, like televisions and stuff, Blu-ray was was. Oh. I, I don't even think that's 4K at the time. Blu-ray was the the big thing, and there right. was a side by side shot of a Blu-ray and a DVD, and you could see those those like those artifacts in the Blu-ray of that old uh, old film at the time, and in, because I, don't know, I imagine it's because of that sort of. Um, that scanning process and stuff you you end up getting a lot of that just film grain and artifacting like that it's an interesting little
1: <laughs> yeah well film film <laughs> deteriorates deteriorates over time uh because the the dyes tend to leach out and mm-hmm. uh you know that's why people who really want that archival there there are a lot of steps they go through to try to get it as um i guess in a in a format that will stay forever right so not just digitally scanning but there are things like uh, uh where they'll do um basically black and white negatives that represent uh, three color ranges. So basically, oh. you combine those because the black and white film stock holds up uh, and doesn't lose. You know,
2: interesting. Huh.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't realize that the the, the, the that, that would be that way. And then, and so I guess then you have like three three separate reels for each each uh, red, green, yeah. green, blue. Isn't how they? Isn't that how they shot like very early color? Oh. Dang man, but... Was that they split? They
2: were, Yeah, they were down
0: again yes. A little, yeah. Um Hiccup. Yep. i uh, I'm gonna have to figure this out afterwards. It's <laughs> very unprofessional. I apologize. <laughs> but um I remember that's how they did um Mary Poppins. That's mm, how they got okay. the that's how they got such a clear um cut uh instead of like a green screen or blue screen or whatnot like that um uh oh, who i watched,
2: I watched the important. video of that uh vfx artists react i, do, I think it was I, I watched that, that episode or... too yeah, yeah. what they what they had to do it was they, ha- they had a prism to separate the light That's and they shown a um i don't think it was uv but it, it was some sort of like light that you can't see um, on the background and then so they basically got a perfect mat Of, like, the actors in front of the background screen. And um, they can't do that anymore because they can't figure out how to remake that prism that separated all the color that we see onto one film and the color that we didn't can't see onto the second to create the map. Like, it was a one time prism that they could never, ever replicate again. Yeah, Yeah. That's why Mary Poppins, like, it has amazing, like, way better than what we could really. And possibly do with a green screen or blue screen, especially back then. Oh yeah, well, where, And it where, just where looks film, so good.
1: Where film gets interesting is, that, yeah, there's been a lot of discussion and people write about this, but basically late 80s and 90s, that era of television is basically lost mm-hmm. be, because that was an era where you no longer cut film you transferred it and you edited it electronically, right? So you end up with a videotape master, which at that time was standard definition. Mm. In a case like the Star Trek um, Next Generation, Mm -hmm. those video effects were all done at standard definition resolution. So there's no film to go back to that's got all the complete visual effects. And if they ever wanted to do a a really enhanced version at whatever modern resolution you pick, you would have to rebuild all of those visual effects, which would most likely get cost prohibitive.
2: Is that why we got the Star Wars remastered versions where they changed everything? (laughs) No, I think- No, I know that wasn't actually- Because Lucas could, (laughs) right?
1: Uh, but, you know, I, interestingly enough, in in the 90s, uh, I worked at the uh, post house that was on the lot at Universal in Orlando. Mm-hmm. And we were doing post on several first run television series. So uh, one of them was uh, The Adventures of Superboy. And then there was another one called uh, Super Force. Uh, but there was also a Universal one called Swamp Thing, right? Oh Swamp Thing, <laughs> yeah! We did all the posts on all of it, all the effects, everything. Well, in the case of Swamp Thing, Universal didn't have a lot of trust in what video industry was telling them in terms of, oh, this stuff will always be great, you can always transfer to something better. And they insisted on having a cut negative for everything. So any effects that were done were only allowed to be done on film. So oh, wow. if it was shot at a frame rate intended to be slow mode, it could only be a film-friendly frame rate. Uh, if there were titles, they had to be optical titles and so on. And wow. so of those three series, Swamp Thing is the only one that still has legs that they were able to go back to the negative, retransfer it in HD, if they want, re it in 4K, you know, whatever. And the other ones, they're kind of stuck in the standard def, uh, you know, prison of their time.
0: Huh.
2: Wow. Yeah, Interesting. I never considered that, like, yeah, all of the effects and everything, like, if that wasn't on film, like, yeah, you can't make it higher res. Right, right.
1: Are, are you familiar with the uh, the 1960s television show called The Prisoner? No, That's like a cult sci-fi classic, right? Patrick McGowan was the uh, the star. Okay. And so this was done around similar time as uh, the original Star Trek episode. So mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly, but like 67, 68. Uh, and um, it's a very bizarre thing, but uh, that was recently like retransferred and there's a a website, and I I don't know the name of it, but they have posted all of the original episodes, which is only like one series. It's like 12 or 13 one-hour shows. And it's gorgeous. It's amazing what it looks like. Uh, You run it on, you know, your computer, and it looks very pristine. And, of course, at the time, they went for, you know, very vibrant colors and and stuff like that. It just
0: really, really pops today. Interesting, cool. Oh. We have a couple of questions for you, Oliver, if you don't mind. Um, sure. Patrick thirty two oh three from Twitch. He's, he asks, how do you transfer? Uh, how do you do file transfers for large or many files? He assumes cloud, but then uh, does that result in no compression and m- must take forever to download and upload?
1: Yeah, cloud cloud is is a, a big issue right now because obviously everybody's dealing with that COVID work from home, uh, and unfortunately, there is no good solution right now. Uh, there are various ways to remote into something to move files around, uh, but ultimately, it really requires better internet connection than most people have uh, at at home. Uh, so. Normally, what we do is we use Frame I/O for review and approval. So okay. a lot of our clients, their final product isn't a broadcast master, so a high-quality MP4 is fine, and that's how we often deliver that to them. Uh, and we'll keep a ProRes master or whatever we need, you know, on our servers for future copies and so on. Um, we don't move like raw footage around. In the cloud, any of that. So, uh, right now we've got uh, several editors working on projects from home. And we've moved one or two files around through Frame or WeTransfer or FileMail, any of the typical services. But uh, since they're in town, it's easier and quicker to dump a bunch of raw footage on a drive and say, hey, you got to swing by the office and pick it up. Uh, hmm. So that's where the whole sort of work from home issue kind of breaks down, because ultimately somebody's still got to be at the facility dealing with the media on the server, whether it's you know generating proxies so that you can move it over the cloud uh, or whatever. Um, you know, a number of companies like we have um, uh, Lumaforge Jellyfish uh, shared storage. We also mm-hmm. have QNAP yep. shared storage. Uh, jellyfish offers a uh, remote uh, access capability where you essentially mount your jellyfish volume as if you were in the office but obviously the access to those files is going to be dependent on the internet internet speeds from the facility as well as back down to your house Uh, so it, it It makes sense to do that kind of a workflow if you're doing a lot of proxy work. Uh, It's a lot more difficult if you're dealing with native resolution and those happen to be 4K files. Um, So, you know, for the most part, we do not move a lot of files around over the internet if you're talking about a day's worth of dailies or things like that.
2: So, one question, because I mean, backup. Is always, I think, should be something people are always considering. Do you? How do you handle like um, backup or archival? Do you use the cloud for any of that stuff, or do you just all keep it on on site?
1: Well, uh, cloud becomes prohibitive on that because yeah. right now. So the particular client that we do ninety percent of our work for is an ongoing client with a lot of evergreen B-roll footage that we are constantly. Mm-hmm updating and tapping into. And we do everything at at native resolution. So that stuff is either HD or 4K. Um, So I think all totaled, I would say, we have probably about 3 quarters of a petabyte of shared storage. Uh, That's gross. (laughs) So obviously, deduct the redundancy and stuff like that. and it's not all filled up. So let's say I've got several hundred terabytes right now that is currently available on the shared storage. If we were to try to move that to the cloud, uh, it would take forever. Yeah, Uh, I
2: think that's one of those times where you actually physically mail drives. I I know Backblaze does that, like they'll send you a drive, you fill it you mail it back to them. Right. But e-
1: even at that, you give me a drive, and I need to dump 200 terabytes. Yeah. That's still going to take a long time. Yeah. So uh, our our normal procedure for these projects is they'll go out and shoot a job, and when they come back from the job, the camera dailies, as is, from the cards, are copied to a cheap Western Digital or something, you know, drive and it's parked on the shelf, hopefully never to be touched. It also gets dumped to the server, uh, shared storage, and there I'll rearrange things. So things that need to be transcoded, things that need to be renamed. You know, We end up in a folder structure of day and camera and so on. Once that's all done, I'll then back that up a second time to uh, like a raw. Uh, seagate or hgst enterprise grade drive right now we're typically using eight terabyte drives i know they're higher but that seems to be a pretty decent spot when the project is completely done whatever got added obviously the project files but any new graphics audio mixes also gets copied to that drive and that sits on the shelf but on premises so that's a bit of a weak spot, but we're constantly going back to those projects, and I always want to make sure that the project is updated, so that it is current. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're we're typically recopying and updating things on that drive. Uh, we've we've looked at different scenarios. Uh, we're not quite sure which way to go with that yet. Uh, ideally, it would be nice to have an off premises. Um, idea. Uh, one of the things we've actually considered is, since we have both the jellyfish and the QNAP, is making the QNAP strictly a backup, and literally going across the parking lot into another building, renting space, and you know, tunneling, you know, uh, Ethernet or something under the uh, under the parking lot, right, and oh, doing a mirror. Yeah. Um, just so it's not physically in the same building. I don't know if that's practical uh, but um, you know the, the other thing is it depends on what you want to back up right? So mm-hmm. I don't know that backing up raw footage in the cloud makes a lot of sense What, however what probably does make sense and is a lot lighter weight is when you finish a project you know, also generate uh, audio stems, so separate dialogue mix, sound effects mix, music mix, generate a master without any finished text on it, and you know at the highest quality, whether that's ProRes HQ or something else that you're working with, that's a little bit lighter weight that you can then put up in the cloud. And if the client needs a revision or they lost their copy or something, you've also got a backup. Um, yeah. the, the other thing that's probably worth saving somewhere is your uh, Premiere Pro project files. Um, so in, in our our scenario, we also um, drop the, a copy of the Premiere Pro project files onto Dropbox. Hmm. So, with the the camera original files living on the cheap drives and being offsite and the project files living in the cloud through Dropbox the the oh nuts oh last ditch original camera files yeah. it would be painful but it it would be doable
2: so yeah. I don't want to take over if there's like other people's questions that are going to be asked. So feel free to interrupt me at any time. Oh, Houston. Sure, but sure. Um, okay. what about like, um, so one of the things I've heard people having to deal with now is since Adobe is only making the last like three versions of their software available for download now. Doesn't that mean that those old project files that in four years, you won't even be able to open them and Adobe doesn't even provide download. Links for the those versions that it's compatible with, is that a concern? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, well, I, mean, I think the obviously the answer is going to be yes, but like. Well, probably...
1: yes and no. I mean, I, I'm I'm probably quicker to update than most people are, mm-hmm. and you know, typically, you're going to have to probably update that project the first time you open it in a new version.
0: Uh, sure,
1: sure. Adobe's gotten a little bit less uh, problematic that way. It used to be every version you'd have to update it. Now it's not always. Sometimes it doesn't require you to update. Um, but the same thing is true of uh, Final Cut. So if you're Oh, yeah. No, Final I didn't mean Cut to
2: like blast Adobe in particular. Right, no,
1: no, 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 no. I, I understand. So, I mean, the things we typically go back to probably get opened at some point within a couple of versions okay Okay. they do get updated along the way but yeah it's definitely a concern and and obviously subscription there are pros and cons to the whole subscription model uh if you cut and resolve that's a whole different issue because resolve is a database And if you want a copy that you can preserve, you have to go the extra step of actually exporting a version of the project. Um, Avid, you know, that's historically been the problem with Avid projects, where uh, editors and companies have stayed a long time on really old versions because they want to make sure they've got absolute compatibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's definitely the case right now because the current uh well it started with the 2019 version of media composer now 2020 but they're going for a revamp of the entire uh under the hood architecture as well as the interface and because of apple dropping uh, all 32-bit support you know, they've had to go back and replace some things where before they were dependent on, you know, quick time framework that now no longer exists. Uh, there's, a, there's a level where you're not going to have backwards compatibility. And of course, that means a lot of companies won't upgrade or can't upgrade. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not to mention if you're a a typical large avid rental house in la where you're supplying shows you may have a hundred systems that you're constantly having to you know it's not just the version of software but it's also the os you're running and any hardware for the machine so you know historically those guys have been running on you know
2: fairly old machines yeah yeah well because if it works man and, and like you just stick with it. I mean, in those kind of situations where like any downtime is going to cost you, you know, tens of thousands of dollars each day, it's like, well, okay, well, the editors can deal with older versions (laughs) or the version. I mean, and, and if it's the version that they've been working on for years, they're probably pretty darn efficient at it. Right, right. Well, sure. I mean, you
1: know, you, if you're on the technology side, you tend to be quick to check out new things and yeah. you know test new software and see where it goes but if that's not really your bag you know it's like okay I I'm being paid to be good at the creative and I know this software inside and out it it basically gets out of my way so at that point the last thing you want to do is have somebody throw something that looks completely foreign mm-hmm. to you which is, you know, which is the, uh, the, um, basically the place where Apple made the shift from Final Cut 7 to Final Cut 10, right? Mm-hmm. They just went the brutal route and said, we're going to cut the cord right here. And you're
0: either with us or <laughs> go to
2: something <laughs> else. And they kind of backfired on them just
0: a little bit, it feels like. Oh.
2: Of, i you know
0: a, some grumpiness about that
1: yeah the, there's grumpiness but i think they also picked up a whole probably a whole new level of user mm-hmm. i i think you know their position has always been that they like the professional user but that's not necessarily the focus of their business mm-hmm. so you know we'll put those things in that a professional user mm-hmm. will need but we're really adding all these things that make it easy, make everything get out of the way. And I, I think what you saw historically in, you know, Final Cut One through Seven, is it kind of went more down the route of the professional user, and it wasn't just Final Cut Pro; it was also Final Cut Server and the Xserve and the Xsan and all of that. And I think somewhere along the line, you know jobs went wait a minute that's not
0: who we are you know we're taking a different route yeah there was there was one more question from uh from youtube uh, richard putnam's asking oliver uh, have you ever watched old russian movies and if so what do you think of the russian influence in movies
1: i have not watched old russian movies no <laughs> uh so uh i don't know don't quite know how to answer that uh, other than <laughs> other than you know the classic things you watch in in uh you know film classes
0: like you know battleship potemkin and that sort of stuff so hmm. okay uh I have, I have to kind of swing back to the topic of, about apple i have definitely noticed in especially in recent years they have tended to it seems that they've tended to target more of the i suppose average consumer market um which kind of explains a lot of the lack of uh, improvement in, like, hardware and things like that. Um, and, and the, I mean, just their product line and things like that as well. Like, they focus so much on laptops. And in that sense, they, they put a lot of effort into the, like, MacBook Air. And yeah. that sort of thing kind of left a lot of their professional creative side kind of behind um for a long time and, and yeah. just now kind of started to get back into that it Seems <laughs> well yeah I don't I mean you know uh
1: trying to figure out what Apple does and why is like criminology right you, uh, it's just <laughs> kind of pointless you just either go along with it or you don't um I, I think just the focus has always been to make tools that are uh easy for people to use and do creative tasks uh however you define that right Mm -hmm. And, and i think they're constantly working on things in all of those segments even though we may not see it so you know maybe it takes them a long time you know i i don't know why they sat so long on the uh on the 2013 you know trash can mac right but then you know the you know, the new Mac Pro is really the polar opposite. It's, it's going back to the, you know, quote unquote, cheese greater design. Right. But it, it's really an upgradable machine and all of that. But it's insanely expensive as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, if you want to uh, not worry about user upgradability, then the iMac and the iMac Pro is a pretty, pretty good item. But you know look at look at the market share. I'm sure they're selling way more laptops of every version than they are desktop machines well, and iPhones
2: and services iPads, like the, the services are getting more more for them
1: yeah, yeah yeah but and obviously now the whole shift to Apple silicon, the arm chip mm-hmm, uh, is going to be you know that's that's an interesting thing right yeah. and And we'll know what they're really capable of once you start seeing the first few machines come out. And, you know, if everybody's guess is right, then that'll probably be a low-end laptop, maybe a low-end iMac uh, this year. By the end of next year, maybe sort of middle-tier iMacs. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, I've talked to the people who are running the developer version, which is basically the the mac mini with the ipad pro chip in it Mm -hmm. and they're telling me that surprisingly enough the performance
0: is actually a lot better than they had expected so it makes a lot of sense actually because um i remember last year at adobe max they were showing off some pretty remarkable uh adobe and um the iPad apps uh, that Adobe makes is right. mind-blowing, powerful. Like I'm, I was shocked at the, the level, the quality level that they were able to produce live, like on this on stage. They had they had somebody editing what looked to me like something that could have went immediately out onto a magazine cover and from an iPad Pro, and that's right. that was mind-blowing.
1: Well, and and clearly Adobe is doing the whole Rush uh, product. Oh, yeah. Which is very much focused on, you know, running on an iPad. So I, I, you know, I I think there's, you know, a little bit for it for everybody and for everybody. So, uh, you know, the people that are producing video today are, is different than the people who are producing video ten years ago by the numbers mm-hmm. anyway. But obviously, you still have people who have to deliver at a certain level, and you have to have hardware to do that and software and uh you know it it, you know there there is no free lunch right so if you want to deliver it quickly then you're going to have to pony up for uh you know better components more expensive machine and so on if you have the luxury of time then you can go more low end right and nothing has (laughs) nothing has changed that equation right
2: right No, no, uh, because, like, yeah, computers have gotten faster. But we've also, like we were saying at the very beginning, like, oh, well, now we're not just HD, now we're 4K or 8K or possibly 12K. Like everything is moving at the same time, you know, kind of in somewhat of the same direction. So it's it's always going to be that same math you're having to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But I mean, you know, just from its sheer numbers, You know, if you look at Apple, the size of sales they've got in phones. Mm -hmm. And by default, they're the largest manufacturer of still
0: photo cameras. Oh, right.
1: Because of the phone.
0: phone. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. It's like Lego being the the number one manufacturer of tires because of all those kind of little... (laughs) 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 And,
1: And that's kind of where, you know, sort of the cloud scenario fits in because uh, you know along the line where they made the switch on Final Cut they also dumped aperture right Mm -hmm. because they, they they recognized that people who were shooting stills tended to be it's a more casual experience, right, because you've got Instagram and Facebook and all of that. It's like, okay, I just want something that I can shoot with the phone, I get it up there quickly, and that's where the whole you know moving to the cloud as as your repository for still photos, and that's a lot different than uh aperture was. Adobe's recognized the same thing with mm-hmm. the transition from what's now Lightroom Classic to Lightroom CC, which is the mm-hmm. cloud version. Right.
0: I wonder. I wonder, especially with the move to to more mobile um, capturing. I, I suppose to say because both it's still and film a lot of that. Um, has it's put a lot more power into the hands of everybody um is that a is that sort of good enough mentality is that a detriment to the like industry as a whole like do you find that maybe um that that people hold back from being like over the top creative because well most of the people out there are just okay with uh, a a rather average level of content
1: well I. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the genre you're going for, right? If you're a, a, a YouTube influencer, the sort of style that we typically see where jump cuts are okay and, and a sort of frenetic pace, that's acceptable within the genre. Uh, if you're doing a corporate video where you want some polish and it's a main stage presentation, that's not acceptable, right? So, okay. So it, it depends on what you're trying to deliver. But... You know, I, I don't mean that in any way to slight people who are doing um, YouTube videos, because quite frankly, uh, if you look at them, a lot of them are not, you know, some guy in their bedroom, right? It's right. it's a whole business that they're doing, and they are actually shooting with Alexas and Reds and things like that, and they have invested in workstation class machines and so on. You know, so there is a You know, there's a different tier of, you know, this guy doing cat videos versus this guy doing, you know, product reveals and and things like that. So it it really, it depends on the context. And sometimes I think you have to, as a producer, you have to have enough pride in your own work to go, well, yeah, the client may be happy with a lower level of quality but if we can budget permitting let's let's do the best possible job we can because in the end that's going to stand out against people that you're competing against mm. yeah it's very true yeah yeah I mean i think there's always somebody who can do it cheaper than you're going to do it
2: oh sure well it, it's it's just like contractors like if you need something done in your house triangle. yeah you can always find someone super cheap doesn't mean yeah. it's going to be good
0: it's, yeah it's that that triangle right cost quality and speed right yeah
1: good fast yeah. cheap
0: right? yeah yeah <laughs> uh, well in a, in a similar vein um I feel like we, we ought to kind of touch on the the whole NVIDIA GPU thing because a lot more of uh, this so much is being um, accelerated, GPU accelerated, um, and I, I feel like I probably know where this will where this will end up. But um, what do you guys think, both of you, about um, the the latest and the greatest? Uh, how do you think that's gonna affect things?
1: Well, I mean, I have not been that tapped into where NVIDIA is going mainly because most of the workstations I deal with are on the Mac side. So, you know, I think Apple has kissed them off and that's not gonna change in Mm -hmm. uh, a long time. Uh, And uh, in in fact, I think there's gonna be a third option, right? Because Apple Silicon is going to include a built-in GPU of some sort. Right Right. But uh, in terms of a workstation class machine, you know I would love to have the availability of having a um, you know a Mac pro tower with the ability to put in a an optimized, fully compatible high-end you know Nvidia card.
2: Uh, yeah, that's, and, I don't think that's happening. <laughs> no, I, I,
1: you know, I don't think so either. And uh, you know, obviously on the Windows side, um, I know there are some people who who would configure a uh, a PC with an AMD uh, card, but it's a minority from anything I've ever mm-hmm. seen. Right. So I I really like what Nvidia has done when they've done it, but it just hasn't been in my sphere quite as
2: much. Yeah, I guess my take, I don't know. So a lot of the people that especially like like to follow Puget Systems are very tech enthusiasts. And I don't know if like the hardware is actually going to make a huge difference. I mean, mm-hmm. something like Premiere Pro, you're always almost always CPU limited once you get up to a decent GPU, um, even Resolve. People love to talk about how GPU accelerated Resolve is, but that's kind of cherry picking because, like, if you're just doing some color correction nodes, you know, even like a dozen color correction nodes, whatever, it's not a big deal. It's only when you're using like OpenFX or doing noise reduction that it really GPU power comes into play. Uh, But I think the biggest thing that is going to come from NVIDIA is how much work they're investing into um, like machine learning and and AI. because I think that's where it's going to really make a difference to people in the creative fields. Um, and NVIDIA really likes to make their stuff proprietary, which means it's only going to work on NVIDIA stuff. Uh, but I mean, I think we were talking about this before the stream started, too, where, like, I've been using uh, NVIDIA's RTX Voice constantly because it does really good AI-based uh, noise suppression. And you know I have kids running around, they're slamming doors and stuff, and probably no one's heard anything. Uh, it's just that good. Um, And so I think a lot of the stuff coming from NVIDIA is actually going to be in that kind of like software and frameworks, Mm -hmm. or once we can start utilizing those in Premiere or Resolve, you know, because they make a lot of their software and stacks uh, free for people to use. And with the caveat of you need NVIDIA, so they're making the money by people having to buy NVIDIA-based hardware. Uh, But I think it's the software side that's really gonna make an impact for people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people have a fairly limited point of view in terms of what a GPU, what they think a GPU does, where, in fact, a lot of the processing is being shoved off onto the GPU for all kinds of things. And I guess that's that's a bit what, you know, what Apple has basically done with the whole transition to metal of Mm -hmm. trying to unify that. So... You use whatever compute hardware is
2: available to you. Yeah, well, and it's an extremely complex topic. I mean, we say all the time, people say, well, why doesn't Adobe just make everything multi threaded? Because it doesn't work that way. Why doesn't Adobe make everything <laughs> GPU accelerated? Because it yeah. doesn't work that way. Like, you can't just, it's not just magic where you flip this flag from GPU enabled equals one and uh, it works now. Yes. Like, oh, huh, it doesn't, well, I, I, doesn't work. I think probably the most common, uh, request
1: probably is why isn't after effects completely real time
2: (laughs) (laughs) and and they're doing some good work i mean they added gpu acceleration i mean a while back um and now they were they've been teasing like super teasing um multi-threaded capability back into after effects um they teased it like lasted uh NAB or Adobe Max, I forget what. But it was like in a session and like they never advertise it anywhere else. But like I've got pictures. Mm-hmm. I took pictures of like in this section. They were talking about it and they did a little demo and like still nothing official. But oh maybe I'll come eventually. But so
1: Yeah, I mean Adobe Adobe does that. They'll they'll yeah. they'll toss out things that are probably pure research that mm-hmm. may make it into a product in two or three years, but not in the way it was presented.
2: Yeah. Well, that's like their whole uh, automatic, their rotor brush stuff uh, yeah. started out kind of that way. But...
1: Well, one of the things, though, with NVIDIA is that has me a little nervous from a computing standpoint is they seem to be really big into, uh, like, vehicles and driving and... Mm. It's oh, my sure. understanding that they're like the GPU that drives a lot of the electronic displays and things like a Tesla and so on. Oh, yeah. So uh, I'm wondering if that's
2: way more money for them than, you know, a high end. It might be. But I mean, it's just like, it, there's probably Intel products in your toaster if it's, a, you know, Internet <laughs> of things. Like, I think some of that's just diversity. Right. Like they're, they're trying to make sure they spread everything out so that, you know, if something does happen in one market, they're still fine because of all this other markets. Or, or uh, Bitcoin is... mining,
1: right. yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we is don't need
0: that. to be said though about it. Definitely feels like Nvidia is using the like gaming and enthusiast side of things to fund so much of their scientific computing, AI, oh, yeah. machine learning sort of arm, and, and and I think and I think it's kind of a, a feedback loop in a way, like. You know, people buy these graphics cards for playing video games. That allows that allows more GPU compute, sort of AI stuff, which ultimately leads back into better video games, better graphics processing, better. Um, I mean, all of these other sort of like Adobe Sensei, the uh, the. Um, Car, you know, autonomous vehicle programs, um, all sorts of different stuff that that apply in a very general sense, which I think ultimately benefits the humanity in a in a, in a way. You know, it's um, cool. I don't know. I just think it's really really <laughs> cool and, cl- and clever of them to to because it, it, the the face. So, of so Inver- is are is your argument
1: that uh, gamers make the world a better place?
0: I I think so, in in a big way, actually, Uh, and um, from a lot of different angles. uh, Honestly, um, there's there was early early um, protein folding sort of games games where you would you know fiddle with these widgets and stuff and solve virus problems or protein folding problems not just like folding at home but like where um or or other initiatives too of of um identifying galaxies and things like that that feed back into training algorithms to to do it for us in a way Um, well and we're also seeing
2: now like uh game engines are being so widely used in you know vfx and posts mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, Unreal is absolutely massive for us right now. Like, we're trying to invest a lot into, you know, Unreal, like, research and developing testing for and all that stuff because we're just finding it popping up everywhere. Um, And so, yeah, I I do think. And, you know, you were saying before that, like, you thought somehow like a gaming kind of funds workstation on NVIDIA. And th- that's not even a theory. Like they came out and literally said that oh, five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. Like it was, we don't make money on Quadro or Tesla, whichever one it was. Like this is funded by GeForce sales that they were investing into here. And now I think it's totally self sufficient. But I, mean, I think that happens all the time where companies yeah. will take profits from one area to invest in another. I
0: mean, heck, we do that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and um, that's great. I think it's pretty cool. Um, I'd like to sneak in one last question uh, before we wrap this up. Natalie from YouTube, uh, she says, with the pandemic, it feels like entry-level people need to change their plans. For example, I'm in uh, New York City, and there may not be a lot of live-action work for a long time. Any advice for newbies in post?
1: Uh, Boy, Uh, this is like a throwaway year in in many ways. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know, hopefully that will get better. I mean, there is production going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Depending on where you're at, there are very um, specific guidelines that the industry is trying to follow in terms of safety protocols, number of people. Uh, But yeah, obviously, if you're somebody new trying to break in, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I I would say, like anything, if you want to uh, do it, uh, start by actually doing it, whether that's shooting your own stuff and posting your own stuff. Uh, There's certainly plenty of uh, tutorials out there on the web to learn any of the post software and so on. Uh, But I, I think also still do the traditional stuff. Reach out to people because people are little by little going into offices in certain areas uh and working uh if you have a skill you know that you can do from home maybe it's logging maybe it's uh, some photoshop touch up you know whatever uh, i think that's an area that you can promote yourself as well because i think people are always looking for resources and you know if you have the ability to do that at home and you can market yourself that way, uh, that's a good possibility
2: as well. One thing I'll tack on is I've noticed, um, so I follow a bunch of people on YouTube and Twitter and social media um, and a lot of individuals, but also a lot of like, um, one of the people we, we do uh, some work with is uh, school of motion. They do like oh, yeah. VFX uh, training courses. Um, and a lot of these people, it feels like they're doing a lot more, like contests right now, not just like, you know, tag someone contest, but like, you know, create a project you know, like make a video on this theme um, kind of thing. And I I feel like some of those might be kind of nice because then it at least gives you, like myself, I'm really bad at really open-ended things. Just like do something, I'm bad at that. Uh, But if someone can give me a theme or something to work towards, that's kind of nice. And then that gives me something to do. And you know, something you could add to your reel and all that kind of jazz
1: right well also you know definitely uh, in terms of just specifically post and editing uh, a number of companies I think like Film Supply that makes uh, stock footage available they have a number Mm -hmm. of projects uh, both contests and I think training where you can download X amount of free stock footage clips to try to make a a little mini film out of it so Mm -hmm. at least there are ways like that to kind of know stretch your creative juices yeah interesting
0: okay cool yeah that'd be kind of fun well, I hope that helps out Natalie, um, sure. and that does bring us a little over our hour, so um, we'll, we'll we'll say goodbye, we'll wrap this up, thank you very much Oliver for taking the time out of your day to join us on this, this was great, and Matt, you too, sure. thank you very much for, for joining us, this was, this was so good, all the good conversation and back and forth, it was very entertaining and educational, at least for me, I hope our audience got a little bit of something out of it too. Um, Yeah, so thank you very much, Oliver, for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, and Matt, as you as well, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks, guys. And as always, thank you to the audience as well for joining us. Uh, We do this every Wednesday and Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Wednesdays, we bring in industry experts like Oliver here. And on Fridays, we we have uh, our labs guys talk about kind of the crossover of hardware and software, what we do to help facilitate folks like Oliver to do what they do. Uh, So mark your calendars uh, every Wednesday and Friday at 1 p.m and uh yeah thanks again and we'll see you all next time see ya see ya